Hello and welcome back to another week of discussing of Rabbi Yonah's four kitot, the four groups that Rabbi Yonah warns us, or the Gemara and Soto warns us, will not merit greeting the Divine Presence, and we're going to have to figure out what those are. So we're on the end of this. Today's the last time we're going to talk about Hanafim, about the people who flatter other people, who don't uh, respond to what's wrong the way they should. So we spend a lot of time on Rabbi Yonah's categorizations, I don't have so much more to add. I have a few other uh, views that largely fit the Rebbeinionas, but that uh, confirm and fortify our understanding of Hanifa as something that we need to avoid. So I start with a shla, just because the shla uses the word chashmal as an acronym for these four kitot, which I think is interesting because the chashmal in the book of Yechezkel is an element of the divine chariot. And I believe that he's trying to imply that these people are ruining the Chashmal, right? So I think it's something like that. So the head of Chashmal is Chanufa. And he says, he quotes a sefer called Reshit Chachma in the Shar HaKedusha. And it says there that uh, the non-Jews, I'm sorry, I apologize. Somebody worships a power other than Hashem. An Ovekochavim, a Jewish Ovekochavim, who in a lot of ways we would think is worse than anything because the person is abandoning God Sometimes, in some ways, they have an advantage, he says, over the chanef, the person who does chanifa, the person who flatters others. These are the reasons that he gives. He gives four examples of how the obeikochavim could actually be better. The first is, the obeikochavim in our times doesn't have a navi, doesn't have a, a, a prophet standing there and saying, what's wrong with worshipping these things or disproving it with with signs and wonders. Now, I don't think that, uh, that the Shla is saying that unless you have that, there, you're, it's just fine to worship over the Zara. He's saying that unless you have that, the level of the sin lowers because you don't have it as exactly. I'm reminded of there's this famous Chazonish, which I once examined on Torah Musing. I'm not sure the Chazonish says exactly what people think he says. But there is this Chazonish who says that when we live in a time when there aren't clear miracles, then people aren't as fully liable for their for their sins. And it's part of his idea that we don't have to apply to sinners today or to those who have, we would call them, left the path today, the same stringencies we would have applied otherwise. In any case, how does that contrast with the Machanif here for the Shla? So the Ovi the person who worship idols, sadly, terribly, he at least has the saving grace that there's no Navi, you know, openly telling him what's going on. But a machanif, right? So there's lots of, of claims in the Torah that he accepted mitzvot, he agreed to serve God, he's got the warnings about all those things, and then this person is worshipping, that he says, avod zulato, he's worshipping this other person because the machanif is preferring to keep relations with this other person good and, and functioning and well to what Hashem has told him to do. Now, that's really true about the Obed of too, but I think the point is that the Shla is saying the Obed of the person who worships another power than God, might, not that he's allowed to, but might have some serious doubts. Whereas the Chanef, it's not that. The Chanef is not somebody who has serious doubts about what's right and wrong. He knows or she knows what's right and wrong and has decided to, to prefer and to um, make a higher value of the relationship with this other person. That's what he's saying. Second step, the Obekochavim 
is worshiping a power, but that power, which of course doesn't actually exist, and therefore that power doesn't actually, or if it exists, doesn't exist with a conscience. That power is not something that's trying to rebel against God. Meaning, somebody worships the sun. Even if we follow the midrashic ideas that the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets and the trees and the seas all have some sort of a consciousness, like midrash would give them an anthropomorphic value to them, we certainly don't think that they were rebel against God. They are stuck with these people worshiping them, but it's not them. But the machanif, the flatterer, the person who's telling somebody who's doing something wrong, no, you're okay, is in fact doing exactly that. They're deciding to to join, to to to, to foster a relationship with somebody who is rebelling against God. Now, it could be true that the person, quote, rebelling, unquote, doesn't know what fully what they're doing, and therefore that might lessen it. But the fundamental point, I think, stands, right? The fundamental point is that when I do Hanifa, I'm dealing with somebody who's actually rebelling against God, whereas not that it's allowed, but if somebody, God forbid, worships another power, that power isn't rebelling against God. Second point. So two points so far. Point one is the Obeda Barazar has the excuse that he doesn't have a prophet there making it so clear that what he's doing is wrong. But Hanifa, we've got plenty of verses in the Torah making it so clear that what they're doing is wrong. You could say, well, there are plenty of verses about Avodah too, but that's not the point. The point is that the Hanif knows that the verses say he shouldn't be doing it. It's doing it because he prefers to foster the relationship. Whereas the Avodah is doing it because he's unfortunately come to believe that that other power is whatever. Second step was that the Avodah Zarah, the idolater, is worshiping things that are not rebelling against God. The Hanif is fostering the relationship, is working hard to keep a relationship alive with somebody who is rebelling against God. Third, the Ovechokhavim is worshiping or serves one thing that's other than God and that's wrong, whereas the Hanif, there's no limit to it because anytime there's an advantage in flattering somebody else, even though they're doing the wrong thing, the Hanif will do it. I mean, the Hanif is not about this person. It's about the, the Avodah Vodah at least has the principle of it's the sun or it's the, the jets or it's whatever he's going to worship. But this person, it's just the idea of fostering relationships. It could be anybody. That's another way. Fourth way, he says, the Obi-Kocham, the idolatry, the person worships a power other than God, um, doesn't hide it. And therefore, people can know that it's wrong, and they can know that it's not for them to join this person, and they'll know to stay away. But the Hanif, so the thing the Hanif is doing is not so clear to everybody, because the Hanif is saying, no, this is good, and people won't necessarily know, and this is something that's so alive and so true in our times, people won't necessarily know that it's not really true, that it's not really right. And people will trust him. And this Hanif will have the power maybe to damage them. And that's not true with an Obedo with an idolatry, with somebody who worships power other than God. And therefore, says the Shla, these are all of the bad things about, these are some of the bad things about a Hanif. But it's worth keeping that last one in mind a lot, that the real bad thing is when there are people who lead people astray. So examples that I think the people listening to this podcast will easily agree with would be, let's imagine you have a great Torah scholar, not a great Torah scholar, but somebody who knows a reasonable amount of Torah, and then God forbid joins another branch of what is called Judaism, right? Let's, you know, reform, conservatives are even a better example, although more complicated because people say, no, that Torah scholar knows so much, maybe you can follow him, maybe he's right, maybe this, maybe that. So that's part of where the Hanifa comes in, because the person, by virtue of choosing to be mechnif, by virtue of choosing to uh, flatter and to say this is okay when it's really not, 
is leading others astray in a way that the idolater is not necessarily going to do because the idolater, people will know that he's leaving Judaism and, and that he's leaving our way. The Chanev is going to say, no, this is all the right thing. And that's very hard for people to differentiate. So that's a shlo that I thought was interesting as an introduction and a reminder of what's at stake with this Chanev and what are the challenges of it. I did want to point out that I found a Tshuvat HaGeonim, right? So it's in a book that's in my Barilan called the Tshuvat HaGeonim, Geonim Mizrach Ma'arav. And they quote a Rav Hilaigon. I didn't know very well. I looked him up. He's the son of Rav Notronaigon. He lives at the end of, I think, the ninth century. So this Rav Hilaigon was asked about the following question. So do we, now you have Hanafim, you have people who are flattering others or saying to others, you know, that's right, that's correct, that's good. When it's not, you have all the things we've spoken about before. Do we publicly shame them? Public shaming is a very, uh, is very, uh, dis- people today resist it greatly, object to it, think it's clearly got to be wrong. They'll make principles of the fact that, no, you should not do the positive. That's not Jewish tradition. How we handle things today, I'm not talking about, uh, you could write books about what I don't know about how to handle things in practical life, but, but the idea that we don't shame people is just wrong. I think part of what's supposed to happen when people have done something wrong, we're supposed to now you'll say, well, you don't know their motives, you don't know how it worked out, you know all the details, all true and all problematic, all this. So their their question. Do we announce them in public? Right? Eat person is saying that something bad is really good, and other people don't know, they'll say maybe he's saying the right thing. So I want you to know that I've had this challenge and people hate, I, I get negative reactions to it. I've had the challenge, I'm not going to name any names, but there have been things within the Orthodox community and people who identify as Orthodox thought leaders, male or female, right, within the Torah world or farm from the past that have, that have become very popular at some point and then I consult them and it turns out they're saying things that are really out of the pale. So that's a challenge. It's also whether you speak up, people say, "How? Who are you to speak up against this, against that?" So it's a challenge. Maybe I'm nobody to speak up against this, against that. But that's the question. But if Eloigon was being asked, people don't know. People say maybe he's saying the right thing. Umit chalel shem shemaim, right? And it'll lead to a chilul Hashem, to a desecration of God's name, which let's remember is one of the worst things that can happen. It'll lead to desecration of Hashem because people will come to think that the wrong thing, right? It's it's bad when people do the wrong thing because they're too tempted. It's bad when people do the wrong thing because they're weak. But it's so much worse when they do the wrong thing because they've convinced themselves it's right. And the challenge to get back to a, a world where people know what Hashem wants from us and is really asked from us is much more difficult. And at any juncture, somebody will say, well, what makes you think you're so right? Maybe they're so right. So that's a big challenge. And we also say in many issues, both are right in some sense and both are acceptable. So knowing when that's not true. So that's what Eli Gohan is struggling with all that. And then, therefore, he says, We do, in fact, publicize the, the Hanafim. We do it on Shabbos. So people hear about it. They'll be there because of the Chilol Hashem, because uh, it, cause it creates a discretion of God's name to think that the wrong thing is the right thing. And that's what the, these people are doing. They are blurring our understanding of right and wrong. And you can lead to a world where, and we live in this world now, not just in Jewish terms, but in lots of terms, you lead to a world where there's lots about which there's reasonable disagreement, and then there's stuff what there shouldn't be any reasonable disagreement, and yet, unfortunately, there's disagreement. So that's the Chil Hashem in there, and that's what he says, and he quotes our Gemara from Sota that we've been, that's been our, our uh, basis, it's been our foundation 
for all this discussion. So meaning it goes already back to the ninth century. There was already the problem. The more obvious the idea of the problem, it's an old problem. So don't look at it and think, oh, it's a new problem. We have new ways of handling it. We know better how to handle it. I'm not sure it's true. It's an old problem and it's a significant one. And it's one that by and large, the sources are clear about. We're supposed to be resisting Hanafim. We're supposed to be calling them out and we're supposed to be aware of them. Uh, I think it's a challenge. I know rabbis, I know well-known, well-respected today, not Gedolei Torah, I'm not talking about people who are known as, as giants of Torah knowledge, but certainly well-respected, popular, commonly known rabbis, and I think they're clearly chanafim. They're clearly people who just who make up, and they'll make a principle out of it. They'll say, no, by telling people they're fine, they're okay, I bring them into shul better, and therefore they'll come into shul, and I'll be mekar them, and all this and all that. Big challenge, because it blurs and it or or erases the sense of right and wrong. Says the Uraim. The Uraim is a student of Rabbeinu Tam. So Rabbeinu Tam was a grandson of Rashi. Rashi lives from 1040 to the early 1100s, 1104. Rabbeinu Tam is born in the mid to late 1000s. Move to listen to that. He has student of the Uraim, Rabbi Lezer of Metz, who writes this book called Uraim. I think maybe is most known today because Yerushalayim lights candles 20 minutes early because of the Uraim's view of when we're supposed to light candles, I think. And I once read an article that 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 argue, that suggested that Yerim is a student for Tam thought you like Kel twenty minutes early because he was holding Rabbeinu Tam about the beginning of Shabbos. In fact, the beginning of Shabbos would be earlier than we think rather than later. Not our topic right now. Yerim says about the story in Sota that we've mentioned a bunch of times. There was a story in Sota that led into the discussion of Chanafim, where Agrippas, the king, who's not fully Jewish enough to really have been allowed to be king, he was in public. He was largely a good king. He's in public and they're reading the Torah and it says in the Torah, he's reading the Torah because that was part of what you did on Sukkot and it says, that you have to do it from your brethren. He realizes that's not him. He gets embarrassed and his eyes and he starts crying and all the people say there, no, you're our brother. And that the Gemara says, and the Gemara says, God forbid, that the enemies of the Jewish people, which is our euphemistic way to talk about these kinds of issues for Jews, the enemies of the Jewish people deserve destruction because they were machanif to Agrippas. The Uraim says others will disagree. So this is not something that I'm saying confidently is, is the rule, but the Uraim says even staying silent can be considered Khanifah and would be considered Khanifah, meaning he thinks it's not only that they said to Agrippas, you're our brother. They should have said, he thinks, otherwise it would have been Khanifah. They said, yeah, this is not the job for you, Agrippas, and really you're supposed to be resigning. That's what he seems to hold. That's a big stringency over what we generally think about things. And he points to a story in Kedushin. story in Kedushin is on Ayin Amibet. Rav Nachman, not knowing what he's doing or not fully aware of what he's doing, summons, I think, Rev Yehuda for a for a din Torah to his court, Rebbe is a greater Torah scholar than him, and so he shouldn't have been doing that. And and there's all back and forth. Rebbe realizes that he shouldn't have done it. He says, "Why would I have called you? You're a much greater Torah scholar than me." And he says, "But here it is, and you did." So Rebbe at that point says to him, "Well, now that you're here, say something about the court case, so that people won't say that I was machanif you, meaning." Even if Rav Nachman just let him go without rendering a verdict, without saying anything about the verdict, without saying Rav Yudah was right, it would nonetheless be Hanifah. That's what the Uraim is getting out of that story. That what he needed to have happened was Rav Yudah say something to defend himself. That defense would be good enough that when, the, when Rav Nachman said, okay, you win, it wouldn't be Hanifah. That's a standard, right? Staying silent is not an excuse. 
the Karakemach, which is Rabbeinu Bechaye, which was, uh, is a later student of the Ramban. It's like later in the 1200s. So he wrote, Karakemach is like Torah concepts that he defines for us, whereas his, his commentary on Chumash is just a commentary, not just, is a commentary, a well-known commentary on Chumash. When he comes to define the word Chanufa, he says, Devar Mufusam, he says, well-known, Ki Chanef Moreid Ba'Kadosh Baruch Hu, that a Chanef we, we were talking about Avodazar, right? It's the idolatry and worshiping power other than God. The Chanef, he says, is, is worshiping, is rebelling against God because he's worshiping other people, other creatures, meaning as the Shloth, it's similar to what the Shloth was saying, but earlier in the Shloth, he's saying, because this person is saying, it's more important to me to, to uh, secure my relationship with this person than it is to, to do what God said. Bore, he says, I want you to see how terrible this sin is. Because after all, remember the Agrippa story says they didn't get, uh, they, they were doing, there were lots of things in that generation that weren't going well, but it was the Gemara comment that it was only because of Agrippa's and they're telling him he was okay that uh, earned them the, the, the possibility of destruction, right? And he says there that it says, yeah, and he says, in and then he quotes Mesaratzot. So that's the Karakemach. Karakemach is the reminder that when we, and this isn't so simple because life is complicated. And we've spoken about there are times when there are evildoers who are powerful and we have to handle that and we have to deal with that and that changes the calculus and all those things. So it's not like it's so simple, but there are many cases where somebody's just doing something wrong and we have the opportunity or the ability to speak up and we're supposed to be speaking up, but we don't. We are running afoul of this issue. Says the Rashba in his commentary on Yevamot, and I saw it in other Rishonim as well, but I saw it mostly in the Rashba. The Rambana has a similar idea. When he quotes Agrippa's story, he says, you know, with Agrippa, he says, Rashi says there, that Agrippa's mother was from was born Jewish. And nonetheless, it was Hanifa that led to, that could have led or should have led to terrible consequences for the Jewish people. Says the Rashba, right, that with a king, since you need that the king have Jewish blood on both sides, that was Hanifa. Meaning the Hanifa, the, the flattery, wasn't that it was like completely out of the picture. It's not like, it's not like Agrippus was not Jewish, was not Jewish at all. Or Agrippus was born and had to convert to Judaism. He was born Jewish, right? His brother was Jewish. He was born Jewish. His father was a convert, right? That disqualified him. But the point is, even if it's not the worst thing in the world, as soon as the person is disqualified, if we instead say, no, no, you're fine, Khanifa, says the Magad Avram in Kuf Nun Vav. It's a Magad Avram that's, I think, well-known, but that probably deserves to be even better known. The Magad Avram in Kuf Nun Vav, and building on that, the Mishtabur does it too. Kuf Nun Vav is like, after the Shulchan Aruch describes the morning procedures for the day, the Magad Avram says, you know, the Shulchan Aruch left out a bunch of mitzvahs. But there's a bunch of mitzvahs there. He says, they don't appear in Shulchan Aruch. I don't know why. And he talks about a bunch of mitzvahs there that are also worthy mitzvahs to do. So he tells a story about the Agrippa story. And he says, at that time, the Gemara says they deserve destruction. God forbid. Right? He says, listen. Magad Aram says, well, they couldn't, have, they couldn't really have protested. This is Magad Aram talking. We've seen other views on this. But the Magad Aram says, it's not like they could have protested. He's the king. Nonetheless, he says, Hayalahem Lishtok. They should have at least stayed silent. So we saw the Uraim said staying silent is an excuse, but that's the Magad Avram. So the lenient view is to stay silent and not to speak up as if, oh, you're the greatest guy in the world. And that's the Machanif. 
and about sin out of fear and doesn't fear God enough, right? That's the whole subtopic that comes up in lots of areas about when is it that we're allowed to use human mechanisms to get the outcomes we want, even if God would want some other ones or because we're worried or because we're fearful, not so simple at all. However, he says about it wrong. If he's worried that the king will kill him, so then you can say various stuff. There's a story we saw about Abaye, I think it's Abaye, who somebody, he was with two non-Jews, one non-Jew killed the other, and he says to him, I did the right thing, right? And Abaye says, oh, yes, for sure. Lots of ways to read that story, but it seems like when there is a worry that there's an evildoer has the power to really harm you, maybe you're allowed to say more things, because that's not Hanifa, that's self-preservation, which, of course, then complicates the issue because people say, no, no, this is just self-preservation, and you get into all sorts of questions. Says the Alei Tamar, who passed away in 1982, so a recent recent rabbi in Tel Aviv who had this book on the Yerushalmi. So on Horiot, he says, the Yerushalmi, it says, He infers, I don't think I think this is the correct way to read it, but he infers from the Gemara, the Gemara talks about lots of people, lots of people got killed that day, that it wasn't like it was the story was just Agrippas gets sad and people say, oh, you know, you're great. The Alei Tamar thinks that there's actually a quasi-rebellion at that point against Agrippas, that they were saying Agrippas should leave, should not be the king because he's not fully Jewish and you just read to us that you're not fully Jewish, you don't get to be king. And there was a fight about it and that's what happened. There was a fight between, so that if that were true, it makes the stakes of Khanifa in that situation higher and would maybe explain what was going on. It's not just the Jews said to a powerful figure what they needed to say to, to say to stay in that powerful figure's good graces. It's that they went further than that when there was room, maybe. And this is one of my favorite things to think about. Not favorite things to think about. One of the things that distresses me, I think back, it's back in the 1980s, but it still applies today, when Tiananmen Square when there were protests against the Chinese government, which I think at the time for sure, I think it's probably still true today, when the government was evil and was promoting an evil view of the world. Uh, and I don't know if Khalifa worked for Najib the same way at all, but, and there were protests, right? And there were like 10,000 people in Tiananmen Square. And the Chinese government, because they were evil, brought tanks and like ran people over and, the, and they quail and they quashed the protests. So I spent a lot of years saying this, and it wasn't until recently you saw it. You saw it in China when there were the protests about the COVID policy, finally, and the Chinese government changed. And in Iran, you have, you have protests that they're trying to, as I'm recording this, they're trying to, to, to quell the protests. They're killing people. They're this, but it's unclear what exactly is going to happen. I think it's a reminder that uh, that protests work much more than people think. It just takes a certain number of people. If in Tiananmen Square there had been 2 million people, and remember, the China's a country of, even back then in the 80s, was at least close to a billion. It might have been a billion already. So two million people is two-tenths of a percent of the, of the country, meaning in America, which is a country of 350 million, so it would be 350,000, 700,000 people, which is a lot, but it's not, like, you know, it's not inconceivable that you have a protest that we have a million man marches and more. So... That's what we're talking about there. So in a situation when some people are standing up for the right thing and then other people say, no, no, you're fine, that's where Hanifa has particularly teeth. And that's what the Alei Tamar was inferring was happening. It doesn't have to be, but it's a reminder of the kinds of issues, the kinds of situations where 
Chanukah can be a problem, right? If you're in a situation where, so imagine you're in a shul or you're in a school community or you're in a, just a general Jewish community. And for a long time, uh, people in power have not cared about you and there's nothing you could do about it. So you stayed silent or you even went along because you had to and maybe that was okay to go along. And then a movement arises to try to get back to a better place. You know, and as I say that, there are places in the Jewish world today where there's a movement to rise to get back to a better place. But the people doing it are doing it in ways that I find uh, very problematic and very uh, very not from and not religious. So I don't, I'll leave that aside. But the idea of being we're supposed to support the good, especially when it's when it's making a move to try to come back. Second to last source for today. The Shut Mishnah Lachos, Nasha Klein. Nasha Klein was a Holocaust survivor. He was known, as far as I knew him, as being somewhat very somewhat strict, and certainly in what we would call the right wing or the more right wing community, and in that way. So lots of issues, and I don't want to say that everything he says is absolutely correct. But he says some things that I think are insightful and interesting. So here he says, um, that some one of the people he knows had said to him that the Hanifa he sees in his world today, or in his time, was only to those people who were successful and in power, because we have this idea that when people are successful and in power, you have the right, you have the ability maybe to be machanif them because you have to and because you have to get along. Says Rabbi Klein, though, in the Mishnah Lachot, is in volume 17, how could it be? Shomer Torah, for same, how could it be that somebody who cares about Torah, observing Torah, will publicize the fact that somebody who doesn't care about Shabbos at all, somebody who doesn't care kashrus at all, right? Even when there's kosher meat there, will eat the non-kosher meat. Somebody who denies that Hashem gave the Torah to Moshe. So he doesn't believe in any of the Nivian. Now, he says b'meizim, and he says deliberately and willfully. And today, it gets complicated. There are plenty of people who say, no, most of the people don't know what they're doing, and therefore it counts as shogeg. So many people say that even about people who are raised in an Orthodox home because of the atmosphere. So that part of it, you don't have to accept. But the idea that he's saying, I think, is a one to consider. right? And we're going to write about him and about all the people who join him or her in their movements, we're going to write about them in, pay, in newspapers that thousands of Jews read. This is what he says. These are our brothers, and and you're a Jew like the rest of us, and, and treat them maybe even some of these people like their rabbis. Many take a reform rabbi, uh, conservative rabbis, many of them problematic because they all have theologies that run counter to the Torah. And yet, right, and... So what he's not crediting, but what we can credit, because we come from a world where this is true, what he's not crediting is how difficult the decision is because in many, many ways, they want to be good. Many, many ways they're trying to be good. Look, I have a I have a good friend who's a conservative rabbi. I think he's wrong on theology. I think he's missing a lot of things. I think that he's going to have what to answer for. And whether he's a showgame or maybe that, that I can leave up to God. As the same time as I know that he spends his life trying to bring people closer to God as he understands it. So that's the challenge. But Rav is saying it's clear Hanifa to say about these people that they're good. Whereas, I don't know if that's true, but I do know that it's clear Hanifa to say that their this the person I was talking about doesn't violate Shabbos, that their violation of Shabbos is good. Right? Or that their eating of not kosher is good. Or they're just a fine Jew in every way whatsoever. That's a big challenge. And of course, there are other Jews, Jewish leaders, who will say, no, unless you don't, unless you do that, you're going to lose them, and they're never going to come close. You're never going to have a chance to bring them close, and therefore you have to do that. 
You know, that's the, the challenge of Hanifa, because I think it might be Hanifa, and the other claim will be it's necessary to bring them close and to help them out. There, there's uh, sources for that as well. I'm just not sharing them because I don't think that that's the, I don't think that's, that's the Rabbi Yona version of it. And I don't think it's the fully correct version of it. I think it's a, it's a line we have to tread very, very carefully. And then finally, Daf al Daf on Masechet Soto. Daf al Daf is this collection of ideas on the, on the Gemaras. They quote our Gemara about this. He quotes the Chemet. Stei Chemed says, you know, there's a custom nowadays when you talk about rabbis, you give them all these honorifics. You say, oh, they're the greatest guy, they're a gone, they're a this, they're a that. Maybe that's Khanifa also. So he quotes a shoot called Maaseish. When Maaseish was written by one of the early Rishon Letzions in Palestine, among the Sephardic rabbis, a Rishon Letzion called Yisa Bracha. There's a shul on Jabotinsky in Jerusalem, which is known as Yisa Bracha because it was his shul. So that, I think it's because his name was, I've forgotten his name now, but Yisa Yud Shin Aleph was the acronym for his name. So he says it's not Hanifa. Because if somebody deserves honor and you're going to add to their honor, that's Hanifa. That's not Hanifa. Hanifa is when you have somebody who's bad and doesn't deserve honor. That would be maybe the answer to my question I was raising before with Menashe Klein, meaning if you have somebody who's, uh, God forbid, intermarried and violates Shabbos and, and eats uh, not kosher, but gives, I don't know, $20 million to some great cause in Yerushalayim, we can praise them, maybe, for the great cause. Don't say this is a great Jew. Don't say this is a great servant of God. You can say, this is somebody who cares enough about, about important causes. They're giving this money, and isn't that great? Now, Rabbi had said that even doing that has an element of Hanifat to it, but the challenges in our days with these kinds of things. But So that's what Yisab Racha says, that people who deserve honor, you can honor them. You can even add a little bit to their honor. And you don't have to worry that it looks like you're lying because we have the Gemara in Kedubot that says, we spoke about this when we were talking about lies, that says when we dance in front of uh, in front of brides, we always praise them because we want to help people feel better and want to develop society. So he's reminding us of this whole discussion. And next time we'll turn to, uh, to Lashon Hara. And Rabbi Yona's discussion of Lashon Hara, that'll, be, that'll take us to the end of our podcast. But uh, for this time, we have the conclusion of Khanifa and the and the and the challenges of it, with the idea being that it's always very important to know right from wrong, and to not be among those who are saying that what's wrong is right. And then in all of the shadings and all the nuances, and I I, I don't never want to I never want to lose sight of shadings and nuances, but the underlying truth that when there are things that are wrong, it's wrong for us to in any way be part of fostering those things or giving the impression that those could be right or could be acceptable because when they're not, they're not. If we are, then God forbid, we'll be like the Jews without Grippas, we'll be like Hanafim, and we will again deny ourselves the possibility of greeting the Divine Presence. This has been our discussion of Reniona's four Kitot. We'll see you next time when we start talking about how Reniona understood Lashon Hara, understood what we call slander or gossip and those issues. Be well.